Welcome to the ML India podcast where we talk to people in India that are doing really cool things with data. I'm Karmanya and I'm Hitkul. Today we're talking to Dr. Monuji Chaudhary about linguistics, NLP and industrial research in India. Monuji did his bachelor's and PhD at IIT Kharagpur and is a principal researcher at MSR India. In addition to being a prolific author at Premier Venues, he's an eminent expert on low resource languages and natural language understanding. Do you want to give us like a very quick introduction um, just for the audience perhaps? Sure, Karmanya and Hitkul. First of all, uh, thanks for inviting me uh, for this podcast. And I believe this is the very first issue of the podcast. So so even a bigger thanks for thinking about me uh, as the you know opening batsman for your podcast. Uh, so to give an introduction about myself... Um, uh, I'm a researcher at Microsoft Research Lab India and have been working here for last 14 years. Before that, I did my undergrad and PhD both from IIT Kharagpur and in computer science. Uh, I have been working since uh, my final year undergrad times. I have been working mostly in natural language processing, but I would say more broadly, I have been working on artificial intelligence and cognitive science for instance i have looked at music i have looked at psycholinguistics so so not only natural language processing uh, so to say but more b- broadly computation plus cognition and there are a whole bunch of things within that arena that interests me um, yeah and then uh, within uh, let's say the world of nlp the more specific uh, interests that i have or I have been exploring lately, are one is in the area of what we call code mixing or code switching, where people mix multiple languages in a single conversation or utterance, and how to process it, why do people do it, and all. So that has been one area of research in our, our lab for last, let's say, five, six years. The other area which uh, I have been interested in, and, and people in our lab, we have been working on it for quite some time uh, is this issue of uh, low resource languages. Uh, as we all know, like um, a lot of Indian languages have very little resources or data, so as to say, and data is very, very essential for building systems, especially machine learning systems. Uh, so uh, what do we do when we don't have enough data? Uh, what are the different kinds of problems, challenges, and what are potential solutions? And how can we help the you know, community who speak those languages. And uh, that's the broader theme of the other area I'm interested in. Uh, So broadly these two, but yeah, as I said, uh, there are also specific interests. For instance, I'm right now also looking at natural language understanding and natural language inferencing, which looks like a, you know, very intriguing area because on one hand, we have these systems like GPT-3 uh, which seems to, you know, be able to do fantastic things which we couldn't have even imagined a um, few months back before GPT-3 came, right? Or or few uh, a couple of years ago, we would not have, I mean, nobody would have even dreamed of a machine which would have such capabilities. So that's a great achievement. But on the other hand, we also feel very, you know, if you look a little deeply into uh, these systems probe a little deeper more and more people are showing even though it can do fantastic things it also fails on very very simple things so what's really going on so that makes natural language understanding 
and one particular version or task which is we call natural language inferencing uh, a very interesting area and a very active area of research right now and and i am also kind of exploring that a bit awesome um so i yeah i mean i think that's definitely really interesting i remember uh, from this year's acl particularly there was the checklist paper where they went in and they looked at um, a bunch of very standard off the shelf uh, nlp models and they were like how well do they uh, respond to what we would consider normal human behavior right so like a sentiment model uh, responding to having the presence of this was not good versus this was good in the sentence and stuff like that so i think that's definitely like something that's becoming very popular today yeah definitely so um on that topic perhaps uh, what did you you had two papers at acl right uh, the glucose paper and then i think the diversity of languages paper what were your experiences with like virtual acl did you like it did you find that the ability to interact with people was a little bit limited i would say i have a mixed uh, kind of uh, takeaways but mostly positive uh, so let me let me talk uh, on the positive sides what i really enjoyed this time in acl uh, so one is uh, definitely you know since there was no travel and uh, registration fee was also quite low because it was all virtual so uh, the scope for a lot of people you know especially from countries like india south asia and all right um, uh, had a uh they they had a scope to participate in acl which which usually is hard because you need a huge funding to participate and and i did see that too a lot of indian students for example who didn't have a paper was still there and i think this is very important because if you already have a paper in a conference you know how to write paper for that conference or or what's going on in the area right and that's how we managed to write a paper so better thing is to get the exposure before you start working so that you understand whether you like the field or not i'm talking mostly from the perspective of students here so i think for students it was a great opportunity to you know listen to the you know thought leaders in an in an area of research and try to you know build their own mind in what they want to do research in what are the interesting problems and all so this was one big positive um the second thing which i liked was this format uh, which had this 12 minute videos followed by an always open asynchronous chat so since it was asynchronous both the chat and the video videos were all available i could go and watch them at any time so unlike in a real acl where you know there are parallel sessions going on and i have to choose between let's say four parallel papers i can only attend one and sometimes it might be that i'm too tired right now because i have already attended three sessions and i don't want to attend this fourth one but the fourth one has this really interesting paper i want to attend so all these issues and balancing between them running after you know session from from session to session and so on those issues were not there i could pace uh, you know my viewing of this presentations so whenever i had time i would view and it was 12 minutes so i could view them in between my regular meetings also or day to day work and everything so it was more relaxed and then whenever i had questions i could just go on the chat and ask people questions and they would uh, answer now here also there was a great thing in real acl after the talk there is only time for like uh, two or three questions 
that's true for most conferences, right? A 12 minute or 15 minute talk followed by three minutes of Q&A. Now three minutes, you, maximum three questions can be answered. And there are so many people waiting to answer questions. Sorry, ask questions. Uh, whereas here, it wasn't like that, right? There was no limit on how many questions could be asked. And, you know, even you didn't have to answer it in three minutes. You could have gone back, uh, you know, come back later and answered it at your convenient time and so on. If there are multiple authors in a paper, the paper, uh, you know, authors could share the load of answering questions between them. So all these were very positive and I saw a very, I mean, at least from my point of view, uh, I could engage a lot better with the authors of different papers with whom I, I think uh, if it was a physical ACL, it would have been much uh, less probable. Um, and then they had this, you know, face-to-face um, -face, um, slots where you could directly go and interact with the authors and authors will be present. So these were like one hour slots, two such slots. These were also useful, but less so, I would say, because of time zone differences. So for instance, we are in India, so we prefer time zones which are not like uh, beyond 10 p.m. or before 6 a.m. in by Indian time. But then what would mean is whatever time we got, which was, let's say, uh, 1, uh, sorry, uh, I, I think it was 11 a.m. in the morning. So it will be 11 p.m. somebody in the Pacific time zone. So for them to come and attend that face-to-face -face session was hard. So their time zone differences mattered. And uh, we, we could see that, you know, people who came and attended their distribution, where they were from, which part of the world they are from, you, you could clearly see time zone really affected that. But, but having said that, because of the asynchronous in, uh, you know, chat possible, this was not a big issue. Uh, the only negative, I would say, is uh, this uh, what we call the corridor chats or the you know over coffee discussions and all which i really missed even though acl did have the social channels and the chat had different channels and people did engage but i found it a little overwhelming because there were so many channels going on and uh, i i didn't have any particular person if i knew whom to meet to or talk to or which paper to attend that's easy i can always do it but you know casually bumping onto somebody and started talking discovering an old friend in the you know uh, crowd those things were very uh, i mean was difficult i i don't at least for me it didn't happen but but i did get a lot of ping from a uh, lot of people mostly students uh, from all over the world uh, who who i think were uh, you know using this chat more effectively than i could uh, yeah, so for some people that might work well as well, uh, but but yeah, I think overall it was very good and very good opportunity for, um, let's say, Indian students to attend and interact with uh, thought leaders in the field. Yeah, I guess like being in Indian academia, especially like for students, it has always been like now most conferences have this thousand dollar registration fees plus mostly traveling to US or European countries, it, it always is a big challenge that how do you source the funding or how many people from the lab can go and actually attend. And especially like not having a paper and going there is almost not even in like works most of the times in India. But I guess that would really help. Virtual conferences would really help that situation. Definitely, yep. Uh, so going in more into uh, some of your work, so you have majorly worked a lot in 
code mixed and low resource languages. So especially considering low resource NLP, what do you think are some of the major challenges faced in this area, especially when we talk about, let's say, Indian or Asian languages? As I already mentioned uh, in the beginning, right? So it's a very in interesting uh, juncture through which NLP is going right now. So because of this, uh, let me call it the deep revolution that has happened in NLP, uh, we can now do things which were unthinkable even few uh, years ago, sometimes even few months ago. Uh, so there is a lot of very fascinating stuff happening. Uh, no, uh, you know, denial in that. Now, uh, of course, a lot of people are asking whether we are making real progress in language understanding and tough questions like that. Um, my answer to that would be, uh, you know, perhaps not or perhaps yes. Certainly, we are making some progress and there is a lot of, inter you know, questions that needs to be answered, which is good. As a researcher, questions are always good to have, right? So, uh, there are lots of open questions whether the systems are really understanding what they are really understanding and which we will look into that. And so overall, I am very positive about this deep revolution in NLP that has happened. But then there is one uh, big side effect that also comes with it. The side effect is often these systems require a lot of data to train, uh, train a model. Now, mm, if you look at how NLP has progressed over the years, uh, the earliest models in natural language processing in 1960s, 70s, even till 80s were mostly rule-based. You really did not require a lot of training data in a language. Then came the machine learning models, early era of machine learning, 90s and all. So you required data, but the data wasn't, uh, the data requirements were not too heavy. So it, it was possible to create these data sets for a large number of languages. Uh, even though, I mean, it might not have happened for various historical reasons. It did not happen for Indian languages that well, even at that time. Uh, but, but nevertheless, it was possible. But what happened is when we started building resources for, let's say, Indian languages, thinking of what is the need for today's systems, by the time we had would have built the resource, which maybe may took five years. In five years, the technology would have progressed so far that those resources, uh, those amount, you know, would be minuscule, and the technology would require a lot more resources. And with deep learning, this resource requirement is huge. So all this, you know, mm, hype or who and cry about GPT-3 is, uh, if you think of it, basically what goes under GPT-3, the basic architecture is not revolutionary. We knew about these architectures, just that it is bigger and trained on more data. So essentially um, several hundred billions of tokens of English, right? So uh, the question is, can we build that kind of data sets for Indian languages or, or any language in the world? Um, I, I will mostly talk about Indian languages because we are talking in the Indian context. Uh, but, but yeah, just uh, keep it in your mind that this applies to a very large number of languages in the world, which is essentially what we show in this linguistic diversity paper. That uh, if you look at the languages across the world, there are only five to seven languages which has a lot of resources. And therefore, you can build GPT-3-like technology for those. Probably GPT-3 is an extreme example, right? Probably only English has that much resources. But even if you think of Arabic, Spanish, and few other languages, you can build cutting-edge NLP technology for them as well. 
but then only five to seven languages whereas the world has five thousand to seven thousand languages so it's one thousandth of that right what about the rest of the languages and if you look at them there is a nice uh, or rather unfortunate uh, power law distribution uh, so a, a very large number of languages have no resources and uh, and and there are languages in the middle also now uh, if we categorize the languages uh, in terms of how much resources they have so there are two kinds of resources that are important you need uh, what we call labeled data so this might be let's say you want to do part of speech tagging or sentiment let's say sentiment analysis so you would have sentences and the labels for the sentiments right whether it's positive or negative and so on so that's labeled data and then uh, unlabeled data it's just let's a running text or corpora in those languages now you would uh, i mean imagine and rightly so that getting running text is much easier than getting labeled data because you need a human intervention to label the data which is more time and effort intensive and one again good thing about uh, neural nets is it has made uh, requirements for labeled data uh, less so now we can do well i mean we have this multilingual zero shot transfer kind of approaches where with very little or almost no label data we can still achieve good success good accuracy in a particular language let's say hindi in sentiment analysis provided we have lots of label data in some other language let's say english in this case however we need at least unlabeled data for hindi and we need a lot of unlabeled data to do well now then the question is how much labeled and unlabeled data we have across the world's languages right and what we saw is uh, you can look at the languages and neatly put them into five cat five or six categories so uh, what we call category 5 or the winners are these five or seven languages which has most of the resources both labeled and unlabeled and category 0 are uh, the languages which has unfortunately kind of nothing so they are left behinds and and the number of languages in the category 0 is 88% of world's languages which is a huge huge amount right and the number of speakers speaking those languages is in uh, is close to i don't forget the exact number between 1 and 2 billion so it's it's again 1/6 uh, or let's say 1/7 of world's population so uh, th that's a huge problem of uh, resource distribution and even with the deep methods we really can't do anything about this left behinds now coming specifically to indian languages right hindi is in the second level like level 4 which we call underdogs so hindi has enough resources and everything looks quite promising for hindi hindi can be easily pushed to have the best technologies within few years or or if we work a little more on hindi so so i don't think hindi is as a problem if you look at the next indian set of indian languages uh, in terms of who are faring well uh, we call them the um, category 3 or the rising stars why rising stars because they have a lot of unlabeled data and given the current techniques which work with a lot of unlabeled data uh, i mean can only leverage unlabeled data so for them this deep revolution is really a god sent thing right a miracle so they will now suddenly Uh, look very prom i mean technologies will suddenly start appearing in those languages examples are i would say bengali tamil so these are like rising stars 
but then you go to and and probably only bengali and tamil then you go to the rest uh, you know of the languages let's say marathi telugu assamese they are either in level 2 or level 1 because even the amount of unlabeled data is not enough and labeled data of course is very little and uh, a majority i mean these are i am talking still within the 22 scheduled languages right and if in 22 scheduled languages only three languages come to promising rising stars or underdogs everything else is below and if you look at the un, you know other indian languages which are not in the list of this 22 official languages they were no they are nowhere in the map they are in category 0 but there are millions and millions of speaker for instance a language like gondi has um, you know uh, again several million speakers now uh, you know how do you bring the benefit of technology for this people and make you know uh, you know create an environment for financial and digital inclusion for them because unless you support their language on the mobile phones that they use how would you you know dream of a digital india how would they be included now this is a big challenge i think and uh, other than i mean of course uh, i just talked about the language resource distribution angle for of it there is also another angle uh, which is what kind of technology is needed for what kind of communities right so um, i can imagine that one of the hardest to build technologies right now is uh, natural language inferencing or chatbots which can do a free flow chat without you know on on anything on earth now those kind of things are very hard to build and are possible or or we are getting there for languages like english even for hindi they are very difficult but but maybe we can build or try to build something we can't even imagine building these things for let's say marathi right today or uh, you know gondi forget about it uh, but one good thing is do we really need such chatbots for gondi or marathi are there other technologies which are also equally important and can be built with less amount of resources and uh, probably will bring in digital inclusion much better than building fancy chatbots so this is another dimension like what the speaker communities need understanding that and i don't think nlp community has done enough research there because nlp community has always been mostly uh, you know furthering the field right uh, what is the hardest problems in nlp today and i want to work on that and solve those problems i really uh, don't look at you know which languages even today don't have let's say a good text prediction on their phones and you know what is the simplest methods of building text predictions when you don't have enough data to learn these predictive models so these are questions which probably are not that important in the nlp world but very very important for that particular language community so that is the other challenge right bringing those communities and the needs of those communities in the nlp map so that people who are working on these are also aware and start thinking about these problems uh so so i i let, let me stop there because i think it's it's a topic where i can go on and on but i would like to you know know your reaction and you know what would you like to know more about it or or other things so that, that's really interesting and i think you kind of answered a couple of questions that i had uh, without like implicitly me asking them or explicitly me asking them but um one thing i would like to maybe talk to you or probe you a little bit on is specifically uh, transfer learning so uh, assuming that where our goal or our aim is to hit 
perhaps as you said slightly less complicated or cutting edge tasks for these low resource languages to what extent does like multilingual transfer learning help right or like where you in essentially you pre train on say like hindi or english or a language which has a lot of resources available and then you transfer that over perhaps to marathi or telugu or something like that especially i guess in cases of languages like hindi versus marathi or hindi versus gujarati where there are even uh, much more similarities in the way the languages are set up compared to i guess something like hindi versus telugu which are still slightly more different this is actually a very very interesting question and something which we are right now working on uh, I, i will tell you why this is an interesting question um i mean of course it is interesting because you can help those low resource languages in certain ways but but even otherwise also this is interesting because uh, you see uh, this uh, zero shot uh, cross lingual transfer that you are referring to uh, that came out uh, it's it's a pretty recent technique right it came out around 2018 with embert now uh, and and was perfected around 2019 um so just a year and a half old or so right so how much do we know about these things is a is a good question to ask and of course there is a lot of hype and a lot of people are talking about this but we know that if we train with hindi it will transfer well on gujarati whereas if we train with english it don't transfer well on gujarati is it true and and especially given that i might have a lot of data for english whereas i may not have that much data for hindi still does it make sense to train with hindi and transfer to gujarati and not english so there are lots of these kind of questions and the simple answer is we don't know the answer and nobody has done those experiments and i will tell you what we know uh, so far so when we started probing we had exactly the same question that you asked and when we started probing into like what do people know about this multilingual transfers when do they happen well and all we see you know most of the reported successes are on this um, on a benchmark called glue in which specifically there is a data um, nli data set and its cross lingual version it's called xnli so how many languages does xnli has in its test set only 15 and of this 15 languages how many indian languages are there only two hindi and urdu and hindi and urdu are essentially the same languages right linguistically they are just written differently but structurally they are i mean they use different scripts but structurally they are pretty pretty similar exactly the same language almost so we don't have representation from any other languages from india uh what about other languages from africa and all we have swahili and we have vietnamese and another asian language and of course japanese chinese uh, is there but everything else is mostly european language i might have missed one or two here and there uh so if you see all are or most of our conclusions so far and experiments are based on these few languages now will it generalize to a language like gujarati or gondi or you know let's say zulu nobody knows unless unless we do these experiments we don't know because neural nets are almost like black boxes right we, we it's very hard to make predictions about them uh, theoretically you you have to mostly run the experiments and see what happens so people have been start i mean 
asking the same question or similar questions and they have started working on it. So how they are working? So there are two lines of research. So one line of research is where you get a lot of, um, you know, you build a lot of test data across languages. Training data is easy because here in multilingual zero shot, you just need unlabeled data. So Wikipedia is a good source. So MBERT actually supports 104 languages today. Multilingual BERT has that many languages, including many Indian languages. So even Marathi, let's say. So if you want to do a zero shot transfer on Marathi or Bengali or something, you just need training data for those languages and you can try. But how many languages are you going to try? And when you try, you would see some languages work well, some don't work. For some, it works well, some it doesn't work well. Why? So we have guesses or speculations, but we don't know for sure if this is the case. So one speculation which you were also trying to refer to is called amount of shared vocabulary between two languages. So um, if I have two languages which have a lot of common words, then by virtue of having those common words, training on one must might help the other. So in Indian context, example would be Hindi, Marathi, because they also use the same script, right? Uh, Hindi, Gujarati might have a lot of common word, but since the script is different, uh, for from the neural nets perspective, they will still be different words. Uh, but uh, for Hindi, Marathi, or let's say for English and German, English and French, you would have lots of common vocabulary, shared vocabulary. Now, does it help? There is a line of research which says it helps. And there is also very recent papers which says it is, it doesn't hurt, but it is really not that important. So in that case, there is no particular advantage of having shared vocabulary, if that is true. Then uh, the other thing which people have been talking about is structural similarity, which is true for Gujarati and Hindi, let's say, or Bangla and Odia, where the you know grammatical structure is very similar. They also share a lot of vocabulary, but as I said, because of script differences, vocabulary, uh, unless you do something special, mapping the vocabulary to a similar code space, or fonts script space, uh, it won't be directly useful, right? Uh, but at least structure, and it has been argued that somehow these multilingual models work by learning something fundamental about linguistic structures. If this is true, if you train with a lot of Hindi, it should help Gujarati. Now, is it true? And, uh, you know, what, what else do we know? Why, why it is true and how it learns that structure and all? So all these questions, I would say we are just kind of scratching the surface of it. So we are trying to understand them. Uh, gut feeling everybody has is exactly what you said, that if you train with Hindi, it will help Gujarati. And there is some empirical observations which people have reported around that. But I think a lot of research is required to really see what exactly helps and what exactly hurts. The only thing I will add before, uh, you know, we move on to another topic maybe, is that uh, one thing we have observed is if you have less monolingual data to train with uh, a particular language. So let's say when, when I was training with unlabeled data, I had very little Gujarati data. Unfortunately, in that case, the Gujarati model will be very unstable. So what happens is suppose now you are training more with Vietnamese data, suddenly your Gujarati accuracy might start suffering. For no apparent reason, Gujarati and Vietnamese has nothing in common, no vocabulary sharing. You haven't even touched the Gujarati model, right? But since it's a common shared model for all languages, so therefore, you know, 
some weird, you know, I would say, uh, effects happen. We don't know exactly why this happens or uh, how to disentangle them, but they do happen. And the models or languages which have very little data to start with, these models are less robust and they suffer more when you train with other languages. So uh, again, there are a lot of interesting open research problems there also. So to sum up, yes, uh, it's promising direction, but more research is needed be before we can make such claims. Definitely, this is uh, really interesting. And I guess the more interesting part, which I personally like, is the velocity of this research. I remember talking to Karmanya maybe a year, year and a half ago when BERT and language models was a new thing that there was no multilingual language model. And just in a year, we have so many, at least in work experiments going on, uh, which is like, I think, a great sign for low resource languages. From here, I would like to segue into another, so to say, domain, at least in context of the goal of the research, which you do is social computing. Uh, I Though a lot of NLP code mixing and low resource languages, I guess, is used very regularly in social computing for uh, the actual implementation of the research. The I believe there is a very small community of social computing researchers, especially in India, looking, uh, doing things specifically for society and computing. So what are some line of research which you are excited about? I recently saw your paper on Indian elections and you recently had ICWSM paper on mental health. But what do you think are some of the interesting problems to tackle and how do they actually translate to Indian scenario in terms of products or public policy, which can actually be delivered to society in coming years. When you said no, that uh, there is a lot of things that can be done in social computing in India, and there are not enough groups working on it. Uh, the immediate question that came to my mind was where are, which sub area or area of computer science or science in general, we have enough people working in India. Unfortunately, none, you know, unfortunately, none. See, uh, one of my colleagues says this always. Um, uh, he, he's in, uh, his name is uh, Swami Manohar, Professor Swami Manohar. He was in IAC before. Uh, he's the computer man of India. Like uh, he, along with three of his colleagues, had come up with this computer uh, which is a which was one very interesting breakthrough in not only the history of Indian computing, but also uh, in in social computing or socially useful computing. Basically, it was a handheld device and all. So, so what he says, the reason I you know brought his reference here is he always says India has so many problems, which uh, you know India and South Asia in general, and even more generically speaking, global South has so many rich problems that people have not even you know looked at uh, maybe up one percent of that so when you uh, talk about social computing in india if you look at uh, I, I mean it's such a big topic that i don't know where to start and where to end right but but let me just take one example um, which which i am very familiar with which is code mixing so when we started working on code mixing like people mix languages uh, which languages people mix? Why do people mix languages? And of course, there is research in linguistics there. But uh, research and large scale, you know, studies computationally 
uh, wasn't there when we started working, let's say five years ago. Uh, and then we saw that, you know, if you look at just any social media, be it Facebook, be it Twitter, be it Reddit, any platform you look at, and any Indians, you know, group of Indians talking, they will immediately switch to code switching. I mean, start code switching, mixing languages. And now it's such a wealthy source of data, right? Such a rich source of data. And you can do so, so many different kinds of research. Now, of course, if I am the only person, I mean, our group is the only group working. And maybe there is one more group, uh, you know, I know Professor Animesh Mukherjee in IIT Kharagpur and Professor Niloy Ganguly, their group does some very interesting research in social computing. I know, you know, in IIIT, uh, Delhi, uh, PK does very interesting stuff in social computing. So if you look at... Uh, you know, these isolated groups, maybe 10 of them across India, what kind of things they have done. The number of questions are in thousands and how many 10 of 10 groups can tackle, right? And uh, so, so there is a tremendous scope of research here. Uh, understanding, you know, how the uh, Indian uh, and the South Asian society works in terms of, you know, mm, uh, social interactions, uh, social interactions, languages, in terms of ethics. For instance, in privacy, I hear a lot of discussion these days about, you know, how the notion of privacy itself is so different in the East, especially in, you know, Indian context than that in the Western concept, but, but, or, or even fairness, right? When people talk of, let's say word embeddings are unfair because there is, uh, you know, you can show certain uh, gender associations, uh, which shouldn't be there ideally. So, for instance, a doctor is closer to men, whereas nurse is closer to women in the word embedding space. Of course, it's there in the data, therefore it's learning, but it's not ideal. So, how do you de-bias them? Now, if you look at the Indian context, right, do you see the similar kind of biases? The answer typically is the biases are very different types and and uh, i can't tell you a lot because there hasn't been enough studies but some uh, some studies uh, some unpublished work right from certain groups i know of actually found very interesting biases between food items and gender in the context of indian languages like hindi and uh, you could imagine that uh, you know other things like notion of privacy notion of uh, you know fairness all these things are so so cultural that uh, all, all the current framework, which are mostly developed within the, I mean, using the Western notion of, let's say, privacy or fairness or bias, need not apply as is when it comes to, you know, building such uh, technologies or frameworks for South Asia or India in particular. Uh, so these are all very, you know, open questions, very fertile areas of research. And, and I wish just more and more groups in India start working on, you know, India specific problems too, because there's a lot of scope here. That's really curious. So I would, at least intuitively, I would have thought that perhaps Hindi embeddings would have fewer gender biases, just because it's like a gendered language. Um, but I mean, that's really interesting that that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, you are saying Hindi uh, should have less gender bias um, because it's a gendered language? Yeah. See, uh, if you think of it, right, uh, why the doctor, man and nurse, uh, woman bias happens in English? It's because uh, the way we measure the bias is we take the distance of these words from, uh, you know, other gendered words 
like men women which has a clear gender now uh, you could certain i mean and and that's because you would have text which always refers to you know talks of some men who is a doctor and refers to with the pronoun he there and so on and so forth right and those can be used to measure uh, these biases similarly in hindi right if if this kind of a bias was there so then uh, there would be words like doctor and nurse in hindi also i mean mostly we will use the borrowed terms uh, doctor and nurse only uh, and then you would have associations like you know aadmi aurat and then association like uh, you know the the gendered uh, verb like you said karta hai versus karti hai if you measure you know association of those words with doctor versus nurse you could see a similar kind of bias could see i'm not saying we see because uh, the point is uh, at least one study apparently showed that uh, we do not see exactly similar kind of biases like profession related biases which you see a lot more in english but we see other kinds of biases like i mean it was very very uh, strange to me uh, apparently we see a lot of food item related biases and one of my colleagues later then explained that it's probably because in india certain food items are related to men and certain to women so for instance ladkiyon ko khatta khana pasand hai it's a very common gender stereotype right so when it comes to golgappe when it comes to you know uh, achar and something of the pickles and those kind of food items probably women is more associated with that whereas men is probably more associated with kebab tandoori chicken biryani i don't know that might be the bias which was showing in the embeddings so how fascinating is this right whether it's true or not and all these are different questions but uh, you know just because this kind of differences exist and so striking differences between culture which are reflected in these embeddings is itself such a fascinating thing and very few people have explored these things that's that's the point i'm trying to make here definitely i guess that uh, i was recently seeing the doctor versus man research which you mentioned and yeah it would be interesting to see stuff like this in hindi uh, <clears throat> but i guess we can spend a lot of time talking about uh, these very interesting research areas but uh, in due to the dearth of time uh, we would if like to shift to a bunch of career oriented and general questions so people who are listening can have a better understanding of because there has this very sudden surge of machine learning and data science at least in the mainstream now and a lot of people are getting interested in it so and we regularly see these questions of how is things going on especially in industry how to get there so it would be great to know your opinion on it uh, to start with maybe on a lighter note how is like the research environment at microsoft research india how does the research is different than maybe the product side of things or how do they interlink together so uh, microsoft research uh, started around 23 years ago 23 or 28 anyway it doesn't matter long time ago and and uh, the philosophy with which it was uh, based on um, was uh, primarily um, that research should be you know very independent and should not be tied to products so this was the core philosophy because uh, you know of course there are also product driven research but uh, the whole point of research was to think ahead 
So product teams typically think in short cycles. So it could be as short as three months, what I'm going to release in three months. Or even if I talk of long cycles, you might think of, you know, one year ahead, maximum two years ahead when you, when you plan for uh, what's going to happen. And especially in today's world, it's it's it has become, the cycles have become shorter because the technology is also evolving so fast, right? On the other hand, in research, the expectation from you is you are thinking at least five years ahead, if not 20. So that's what we call like really horizon three or long-term planning or thinking. And of course, we are not thinking of, not necessarily thinking of building products that will affect people 20 years ahead, because that might be a useless, I mean, I'm not saying altogether useless, but but it's it's very hard to imagine what kind of products will be useful 20 years from now, right? But you are thinking in more general terms. How would human-computer interaction look like five years from now with all the changes that's happening and you foresee? How would, you know, uh, let's say social impact using mobile phones in India-like, uh, you know, countries look like five years from now because number of mobile phones would have changed, number of people in the digital economy will change. So you take all these things into account and think about that things. And of course, a lot of these problems also involve under asking basic science questions. So for instance, if you are trying to you know, imagine what will happen 20 years from now, probably one thing you might think is quantum computing is going to be very important. So then you have to build the entire theory of quantum computing and push the state of the art in that field, right? And of course, it has no products related to it today. So that is the primary philosophy of research at Microsoft Research. And therefore, it's kind of um, dissociated with the products. However, uh, this dissociation is only in, in a more philosophical term, right? Practically, what you see is there is a loop that always goes on. We do things, we talk to the product teams, product teams look at the markets, they come back and tell us their experience, which goes in our research. So it's all very integrated. And when I say it's dissociated, it's only like in, in what the fundamental goals are, not in terms of how we work. We, we in general work very closely with product teams. And there are three broad, I would say, charters of uh, the research labs. One is pushing the state of the science. One is, um, you know, making an impact on the society. And uh, the third is making an impact on Microsoft, which would be more like, you know, helping Microsoft products. And all these three are equally important. And different researchers have, you know, might have their own perspective on how they want to do it, how they want to balance between the three, et cetera, et cetera. So in, in, in one line, there is a lot of freedom. Apart from these three broad goals, nothing is specified. So you decide what is important according to these three metrics. Makes sense. To move forward, I guess next question, this is going to be a very broad question and I understand there is no one right answer for everyone. But still, I guess this is a question which uh, even I had think about a lot of times and I have people ask us or around us a lot of times. So it would be great to know your opinion on this. Uh, 
generally when you guys are hiring at msi india or what do you believe is generally for data science kind of positions uh, when you are hiring what are the markers you are looking for in the people and do these markers change based on let's say background so people like maybe me and karmanya who are coming from very conventional background of doing a undergrad doing a phd and then applying to industry versus i see a lot of people who have been software engineers for 5 years or developers for 5 engine 5 years now and try are trying to segue into uh, research or at least data science positions so what are these markers you look for in the people and how do these markers change from do or do they even change based on the background of people or not uh yeah a broad question indeed uh, since you specifically asked about msr uh because uh, the way things uh, work at microsoft in general versus specifically in msr are uh, quite different so in msr there are three kinds of positions uh, broadly right so one are the uh, researcher positions and uh, researcher positions are always uh, i mean it's not set in stone but almost always uh, only after phd and uh, since like i said the research is almost academic style research so a phd kind of training is very very essential of course uh, somebody might have a long experience in you know certain industry and the uh, you know publications and everything so even if the person doesn't have a phd in pen and paper still that person can be considered so that's fine uh, but but uh, it's easy to understand that somebody with a phd whatever they will have right in a portfolio so you'll have publications in top tier venues you will have a uh, you know people will recognize you as a thought leader now of course uh, the expectation would change at the level of hiring so if you are hiring a fresh phd you won't think of that person you don't expect that person to be well known across the entire world so uh, but at least in their field let's say this person works on uh privacy or certain kind of algorithms within privacy and within that community this person's work should be well respected and well known whereas if you are hiring somebody at a much senior level you would want that person to be well known across the world in in the field so th- that's more or less a, a broad characterization i would say now there are also hiring that we do at um Uh, another level which we call research fellows so these are two year positions for fresh undergrad or post grad uh, mostly undergrads who come and spend a couple of years in our lab before they go for the next en- endeavor mostly phd's but not necessarily so now there it's a very different process if you want to know more i can tell more but uh, it's it's a very streamlined process and we have around 30 to 40 people at any given point of time in our lab who are research fellows and they bring a lot of you know student like environment because i mean a university campus like environment because they are very young and almost like the same age as master student or phd students so it's a lot of fun working with them in fact a lot of the work uh, heavy lifting is done by them uh, and uh, then we have other kinds of roles uh, which uh, which are like um, of course engineering roles which we call research software development engineers and then we have program manager kind of roles uh, 
Now, the expectations from these two, research software development is still more easy to you know characterize because there you would want a very deep experience in software engineering and so that somebody can build software as easily uh, with a lot of expertise and can bring in that experience there, right? But when it comes to program manager, that's a very, um, I would say, uh, fuzzy role because uh, depending on the, uh, you know, there are so many different types of projects and programs happening. So what kind of projects or programs you want this person to work with, you would you might want different kind of background. So here it's it's really open-ended. Uh, but, but the number of positions there are also too few, right? So it's mostly researchers and research fellows kind of uh, two big buckets and then RSDs. Great. And I guess the last career question I would pose you is a very short uh, one-line answer of if if you had to give an advice to maybe a young undergrad or postgraduate student trying to get into NLP or linguistics research, what would be like one starting resource you would recommend and what would be your one, so to say, golden tip he or she should take care of? Um, resource uh, is a hard question, but a golden you know, tip I can definitely give is ask yourself whether you are interested in languages, understanding, you know, how languages work, what are different kinds of problems within languages or linguistics, if I be more technical. So whether you are interested in that and whether you are interested in helping the speakers of a particular language. If these are the two things which excites you, right? then NLP is certainly a field you should think of investing your time into. If not, if you are only interested in, let's say, the mathematical aspects, let's say machine learning and all, which is also fine, absolutely fine. I'm not judging here. Uh, but then, you know, uh, I'm not sure if NLP is the field you should look at or other applied fields or, or just machine learning itself, right, as a field you should look at probably. Yeah, I guess that's a great advice. Yeah, sorry, I'm just trying to like uh, think about that a little bit, because I mean I've always thought of myself as someone who's interested in NLP, and then, but of course because I got into it from a very ML point of view, that's actually a question I've never really thought to ask myself. So I think that's really like powerful. And I, I guess that is the reason I, so I have done a fair bit of, bit of NLP, but whenever it comes to research, that is, I guess, I never feel comfortable calling myself an NLP researcher. And that's where probably the whole segue of me ended up going to PK and joining a PhD under him was because the whole social part of it, in, uh, like attracted me a lot more that what social socially end up happening to my research compared to what NLP technique I'm using. So I guess that way I made a fair choice. Yeah, I mean, all the best. And I think you did do a good choice. And Karman, yeah, I, I don't want to discourage you definitely uh, by saying this, you know, and, and uh, I think, you know, uh, what I'm definitely don't mean is whether you have a background in linguistics or not. That's not the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. So to just to be clear, it's it's more about whether languages excite you or not. Right. Right. No. Uh, why, why something is happening in a language or how something is happening. Right. I definitely get that. Uh, it's just that 
I mean, it, sometimes, you know, you go down a path and then, like, very obvious things on that path don't, like, hit you. So I, I just want to, like, thank you for that question. That's really interesting. It's not something I thought about before. Um, I think the last thing we'd like to talk to you about is uh, we were doing some research and we saw that you're involved in something called the Panini Linguistics Olympics. Right. And to me, this seems something like completely left field, right? Because, like, I mean, growing up in India, I've heard of like uh, computer science Olympiads and maths Olympiads and participate in all of those. Linguistics is like, I didn't think there was enough of a community in India to even warrant a linguistics Olympiad. So, uh, do you want to like maybe talk about it a little bit? Uh, thanks for asking this question, actually. Yeah, Linguistics Olympiad is something which I'm really, really passionate about and, um, you know, also proud uh, that we have been able to pull up a problem, a program in India, which I, in my opinion has been quite successful. Uh, so, uh, uh, let me let me tell uh, what it is first, because like you said, most people don't even know. Even today, like uh, even though we have been there for like 10 years now, um, not many people know about it. So it's like you said, it's like the um, science Olympiads. So there are these physics, chemistry, biology, astrophysics, astronomy, math, information sciences, I mean, c programming and all those kinds of Olympiads, right? There are 13 or 14, which are very popular ones. And linguistics is one of those, you know, uh, 13 or 14 Olympiads and which happens at every level. So it's like, in, in some sense, it's as serious as the math Olympiad. So it happens at um, regional level, then national level, then international level. And the international Olympiad is a lot of fun. Uh, I don't know if you guys have been to any of these international Olympiads, but uh, it's fun because, uh, you know, the top, students from uh, from all over the world representing their countries come there and compete and then there is so much excitement it's almost like real olympics so you know one medal goes to a country and you all jump with the flag and all it's very exciting and so much social interaction happens you make so many friends from so many different countries now that's about the uh, you know structure and uh, the league, I wanted to mention the league at which Linguistics Olympiad is. Um, the second thing I want to mention is what kind of uh, problem do you solve, right? So people understand what is math Olympiad or what is physics Olympiad, right? What kind of problem to expect? The main issue in Linguistics Olympiad is if I say Linguistics Olympiad, you won't guess what kind of problem to expect. And you might even think, I mean... You meaning the students or even that school teachers, they think that, oh, it's something we don't teach, we don't understand, or maybe it's literature. And when they look at the question, they see there is no literature here. So they don't know what to do with it. So it kind of falls through the cracks, right? Because schools do not have a linguistics program or curriculum per se. So that has been one of our biggest problem in popularizing it. So essentially what Linguistics Olympiad has is puzzles analytical puzzles. You have a data given in a language which you don't know. Let's say some uh, 12 sentences in a language which is um, almost extinct and spoken in Papua New Guinea. And uh, then you have their translations given in English. And now you have been given six new sentences in that language and translate it into English and vice versa. So this is typical structure of a problem. All these problems use some data from an unknown language. It need not be a natural language. It could be an encoding system, 
you know uh, like it could be there, there are some mathematical encoding systems which people have come up with or even biological like floral diagrams is an encoding system of representing flowers which botanists use so any encoding system where you use symbols to encode information and the task is to decipher that encoding system so in some sense it's all puzzle solving and in the process you learn so much about languages around the world and linguistics so it's a very you know experiential learning nobody's teaching you anything you don't have to go through any formal linguistics course or any book or anything you just solve problems if you are into puzzle solving you love solving puzzles this is for you and uh, how we do it in india right now i mean long story cut short so we started in 2009 india started participating 2013 is when i got associated and then we tried pulling up a lot of universities iits jnu triple it hyderabad is the main organizer right now so um, all these organizations came together and we have a network through which we design problems and then this there are centers around the country where the first level test takes place we select a bunch of students come to a camp where the second level happens usually it's in triple it hyderabad the camp and then from there we select a team of eight students who go for the international olympiad different years it will be in different countries in india we organized the international olympiad in 2016 Four years ago, so this is typically the time when linguistics Olympiad happens. So all my Facebook posts are full of, you know, one year ago you were in Korea, or you know, four years ago in Mysore, these photos, so on memories. And we are, I'm really missing. I think the entire community of linguistics Olympiad is missing this year's Olympiad, which was supposed to be in Latvia, but because of COVID, of course, it got cancelled. But fortunately we also do aplo asia pacific linguistics olympiad which i and few more colleagues from uh, other asian countries we have started last year so this year it's uh, i mean it's kind of online so people don't have to meet in a single country it happens individually in their own countries so even though i mean even with covid we can still host this asia pacific olympiad so at least something which students can participate in Okay, that's fascinating. Um, I mean, I'm very curious as to how much you're taking the experiences from, say, virtual conferences and carrying that over to um, this Asian Pacific uh, Olympiad, which is being held online. Are you finding like a lot of like parallels, or are you trying to like encourage corridor conversations a little bit and trying to figure out how that could work? Um, not that much for uh, Asia Pacific Linguistics Olympiad because there the model is different. The model is see one of the biggest problem of Linguistics Olympiad is designing the questions because the questions have to be very very hard because it's an Olympiad, right? The brightest of the kids come and try to compete, so you have to give really challenging questions. But at the same time, the questions should not require any. linguistic knowledge and they should ideally uh, you know use a natural language or some encoding system which already exist you know i can't come up with my encoding system and ask them to decipher it should be a popular popular meaning well established shouldn't be popular because if it's popular then students might already know the encoding right and then they don't decipher so uh, finding out languages which are spoken i mean which are not known to any of the contestant itself is difficult so you have to go to you know you have to get data from endangered languages which only very few people speak so you don't expect a student coming in the competition speaking that language right so 
and, and it's international so you can't use in india when we run this test we might use a african language because i can assume no indians would know that african language but that's not true when you are doing an international contest so coming up with the problems is very hard and therefore what aplo helps is come up with this uh, problems and it then takes the problem sets and distributes to individual countries and then the individual countries conduct the test in their country and collate the result check it and send the marks to aplo and aplo then declares a you know global i mean asia pacific ranking and marks so it's a very asynchronous process and therefore that uh, conference models don't really apply here but in iol we did talk a uh, quite a bit about whether should we do it or not and eventually you know it was decided that we are not going with a virtual iol this year because you know it's a competition it's very difficult to ensure fairness uh, when the students are writing the tests it's very very difficult to ensure the fairness so that's why uh, we decided not to do an online contest okay well that's fascinating i think that's it thank you so much like um, really thank you so much thank you so much it was great talking to you no it was good fun see you yeah see ya Thank you for listening to the ML India podcast. Your hosts were Hitgul and Karmanya.